Last week we began looking at the life of one of God's greatest prophets, a messenger named Elijah the Tishbite. And we learned that God often sends a messenger to his people when in, in a time of great moral failure. Thus it was in Israel. So what did we learn from Elijah last week? Well, first we began to see what a terrible state that Israel was in. And as we looked at them, it's kind of natural to look at ourselves and to look at even our own nation and to see where we are as a people. Secondly, we looked at the kind of person that God often uses in critical times, who was Elijah. He was a nobody. He was an outsider. He was a man of the land, but he had one important characteristic. He had a heart's desire to serve his God. Third, we saw that God's ways are often surprising. In fact, so surprising that he might even use a person just like you to fulfill a great calling in your life. And last we, we finished with the final words of Elijah, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. And it seems to me that Elijah needed to hear those words as well as King Ahab to remember that he was not alone, nor would we be, as God calls us to go. That he was not alone, and that he was also responsible, that he was accountable for those things that he was called to do or that he failed to do. And so our passage ended last week with the message of God through Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 1. It said, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. If you're unfamiliar with the passage, I guarantee you'll be surprised by what happens next. We begin today in 1 Kings 17 in the second verse. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let us pray together. Holy and gracious Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. The word inspired by the Holy Spirit, kept intact over thousands of years, not so that it would be a dry study on brittle paper, but so that you might breathe through it this very day into our lives. We are honored to be able to open your word and we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes as well to see ourselves in your great plan. Help us, Father, by the power of your Spirit, breathe life into these words and into us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we pick up our story today, weren't you surprised? Weren't you surprised? I mean, this is a story about miraculous ravens coming and delivering food. It's an amazing, supernatural story, but it also seems to me to be one that kind of takes a left turn. 
We went from a faithful Elijah proclaiming before a fearful judge, a morally bankrupt king, and now he is told to go sit in the desert in a cut in the land where his only companions will be ravens alongside just a trickle of water. It's not what I expected. I think what I would have expected was more like, you know, more confrontations, more sides being chosen, lines being drawn, but not this. What's going on? What can we learn from this passage today about how God might deal with us, interact with us? In other words, what lessons might we learn from the cherith? Let let me put it this way. How many of you served in the armed services at some point in your life? You can relate to what I'm about to say. In 1978, I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky to attend basic training. And now listen, it was in July. That's an important fact because I'm from Colorado and I'd never been to the South in the summer in July. And I was so shocked by the heat, but more than that, it was the humidity. I felt like that entire summer that I was just going to melt. And, and what was even, the, the, the thing that I remember most of all was that everyone was yelling at me. From the very first moment they got on the bus as we arrived at Fort Knox, people were yelling. The guys in the funny hats were coming up and getting six inches from my face to where they were kind of spitting and yelling all at the same time. And I'm like, the first, I, honestly, the first thing I thought was this, why are you yelling at me? I am right here in front of you. I can hear you just fine. I'll do whatever you say, just quit with the yelling. I can assure you that they did not quit. In fact, they just kind of kept taking things that entire summer. Next thing they did is they shaved my head. I, I had a picture, I was tempted to show it, and it just, uh, it, wasn't all that, it wasn't all that attractive. They shaved my head, they took my hair, and then they took my clothes. They gave me some back. They put 40 of us in a long barracks, and it just seemed like that entire summer they were taking things. They took hair, they took privacy, they took clothes, and then they took the idea of being self-sufficient. They took away my independent spirit. They took away any idea of rebellion. But then they began to give me some things. They gave me confidence that as part of a team that I could learn to do anything. They gave me a sense of pride of being part of something that was bigger than myself. Weakness was replaced by strength. And by the end of that summer, I felt more alive and more capable than any time before in my life. I came to Fort Knox, Kentucky thinking I was somebody I wasn't. I left knowing that I could do anything. And that seems to be what's going on in the life of Elijah. He had been the spokesman for God, but he was not yet the man of God. I imagine Elijah thought he was somebody. He was a a man of the land. We don't know much about Elijah's past, but we know he was a man of the land, that he was probably self-sufficient, that he was independent. He'd been a spokesman for God, and then God sent him to boot camp. And none of it kind of seems to make sense. It wouldn't if I was Elijah. I mean, I begin to think, you know, I've left everything. You've selected me, I've obeyed. It was scary, but I did it. And now you're telling me to go sit in a cut in the ground in the desert. 
Lord, wouldn't it make more sense if I just stayed in Ahab's face? You've chosen me to be a prophet. Now why do I go to the desert? So what was God accomplishing? I think God's plans are often multi-layered, multi-faceted. And I think part of it was just in order to keep Elijah safe. I mean, that's the most obvious answer. It was just to keep Elijah safe because Elijah had just thrown down before an evil king, the most terrible king in the history of Israel. That's what the scriptures say. And how long would it have been before King Ahab, in a drought, would go say, go get me Elijah. I'm going to end this right now. Go fetch me Elijah. And all the people went to look, and they came back and said, well, we can't find Elijah anywhere. But I think there's something more going on here. And I think we can get a hint what that is by the name of the brook that God told him to go to. It's the brook Cherith. The Hebrew, Cherith, means, now remember this. Write it down if you're a note taker. It means to cut off or to cut down. Cherith, to cut off or to cut down. And I think that's exactly what God's plan was for Elijah in this boot camp. It's like a Moses. Moses went to the desert for 40 years to a a boot camp. We all know that. Most of you probably don't know that Paul was also sent to a boot camp. After the Damascus Road from about 36 AD to about 46 AD, we don't know what happened in his life. All we know is that he's silent. And most people think that was the time that God was molding him, was shaping him for the great and incredible things that he was going to call him to do. What is he doing now for Elijah? Go live in a wadi. We find out later it's for a year. This isn't camping. This isn't going for a couple weeks and toughing it out. This is for a year. And it's hot. And the wind rips through those dusty walls. Maybe he carves himself out a little place to a niche to sit. And there's no one to talk to except God. And then the birds come twice a day. I imagine in my mind many birds, several birds, and they come twice a day for a year. What is it that God wants him to learn? Is it dependence? There really is no choice there. This self-sufficient Elijah needs to learn that not only does he have to depend on God, but he can depend on God. Humility? Humility follows immediately after dependence, obedience. How many times do you think that, you know, Elijah climbed up out of that wadi, out of that cut in the ground, and looked toward Tishba and said, I've had, a, I've had enough of this. Over a year in the desert, sitting, waiting. How many times do you think he just said, I'm going home, I've had enough. But he never did. And he climbed back down and he waited for God. Patience? See, there's a rhythm and there's a timing to God's plan that cannot be rushed. And perhaps most important, intimacy. Intimacy with God. There's an old expression, when I discovered God is all I have, I realized God is all I need. And like Elijah, listen, brothers and sisters, we should expect periods of drought and basic training in our lives. 
This is one of the hardest life lessons and one probably most of us don't want to learn because boot camp hurts. Charles Swindoll once said, it has been my observation over the years that the deeper the hurt, the greater the usefulness. Now, we must be careful not to assume that it is always God who brings pain into our life. That would be a faulty theology, but it is also true that God often uses some terrible situation, a difficult thing in our life, to create something beautiful. We've all seen it. Cut off and cut down. A heart attack sets someone aside for a season, and they return a changed man or a changed woman, a person with a new heart, a broken relationship. And we think it's the end of the world, but all it does is really forge a deeper relationship with our Lord. The loss of a loved one seems like the end of the world, but it's shaping us, it's recreating us to be a little more in the likeness of Jesus. Dependence, humility, obedience, patience, intimacy, some of the most important Christian characteristics cut off and cut down. And in fact, some of these most important lessons can only be learned in boot camp because, frankly, we'll refuse in any other way. Cut off and cut down to make into something useful, to make into something beautiful. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God can make something beautiful out of the hardest situations, even if we can't see it while we're sitting in the cherith. It isn't an easy lesson. It's not one that most of us want to learn. But we should expect periods of drought and basic training, which leads to the second point. God's direction includes provision. In 1982, I accepted Jesus as my Lord. And Sandy and I were in Germany at the time, and, and so we began to attend a Protestant chapel there. After about two weeks, we were greeted by the chaplain. You know, he was standing at the back door. I introduced myself, Second Lieutenant Sales. And he said, Second Lieutenant Sales, I'm glad to see you. We're glad you're here. And by the way, I'm looking for a Sunday school teacher. Won't you consider doing that? Now, remember, I had only bought my first Bible the week before. And I was completely unqualified to teach, but I didn't know how to say no and so I went, oh, okay. <laughs> but what I discovered was that there were very few things in my life that brought me such joy as to study and prepare for that lesson every Sunday. Because God's direction also included provision. And no one learns more than the teacher as they're preparing, and I needed to catch up a lot. I just didn't know so much. And after a little while longer, Sandy uh, the chaplain asked Sandy and I to lead the, the youth group there at the church. And we didn't know what we were doing. And Sandy had a much better idea than I did. But we, we agreed. And we learned that we loved to do that. We traveled with the kids across Europe. And we had a great time with them. And I think we helped them take a few steps down their disciples' path. 
because God's direction also includes provision. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, I prayed and I asked God in those very early years, Lord, do you want me to leave the army and go to seminary? I'd found one in Switzerland. I was ready to go. The thing about the Lord, I always have felt so very blessed because he's, he's always answered my prayers so very quickly and so very clearly. Every prayer that I've ever asked, he's always been so very clear in my spirit except this one question. Lord, do you want me to leave the army and go to seminary? And instead of a yes or no, I got this incredible sense that I hear you, I'm watching you, now wait. And so years go by and stations go by and we tried to be faithful in most of those places that we went to over the years and I'd pray again, Lord, is this the time? Do you want me to leave the army? And the answer was always the same. And just this one question, not yes, not no, but wait. And that went on for years, years, until I was ready to retire out of the army. I was sitting in Charlotte one day, almost desperate. Lord, I don't know what you want me to do, but I know that I need your counsel. I need your wisdom. I don't know what you want me to do. If you want me to cut grass and teach Sunday school, then that's what I'll do. And if you want me to go to seminary, then that's what I'll do. And whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it, but I need you to tell me. And I don't know if for all those years he was waiting waiting for me to say that one word, whatever, But as I prayed that prayer that day, it was like a light went off in my chest and I knew everything within me, it was time to move forward. It was time to go to seminary. And God's calling always provides provision. And so I found a seminary that was very close to where I was working. And I just had coincidentally, God incidentally, had been assigned a job where I could go to school during the week and go to the army and do that work on the weekend, just coincidentally. And I came in contact with the most incredible group of professors and teachers and fellow students that were such a blessing and are dear friends even to this day. And I was concerned because I knew it was going to cost a lot. It was going to cost $27,000, which we just didn't have. $27,000 to go through school. But we took a step and we realized that the army would pay for half and North Carolina Baptists, just like you, through the cooperative program, paid the other half and I never had to pay one cent to go through school because God's calling also comes with provision. Verse six, the ravens, the ravens, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he would drink from the brook. God's direction includes provision. You see, we often look at something and through our kind of our natural eyes and then immediately we begin to come up with the reasons why we can't do something. 
You have felt that tug on your heart, I imagine. You know, this calling that someone's asked you to teach or someone's, you feel that leading that it's time for you to share the gospel with one of your students or with one of your friends or one of your neighbors. And the natural thing in our life is we start to look at, oh, that ministry, boy, there's a lot of problems there. There's a lot of challenges there. You know, we start to look at the reasons why. Well, you know, we should probably consider liability. I've heard that one a lot. Or, or we need to think about the expense. Or that's awfully complex. Or we've never done that before. And we may even sigh with relief because we don't really have to step out in faith. And we might even pat ourselves on the back because, well, look at us. We've been so very practical and logical. It's only natural. But the problem is that we don't serve a natural God. We serve a supernatural God. And he can do all things. If he calls you to it, he's going to provide you the resources to accomplish it. Psalm 50.10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, everything belongs to the Lord. Don't you think, oh, I was looking at that screen earlier today, and it looked like the universe just exploding. Don't you think that the God who positioned every star in the sky can position just the right resources so you can fulfill the calling in your life? We serve a mighty and supernatural God. What in the world are we concerned about? What in the world do you have to be fearful of? If God has called you to it, you feel that calling in your heart, you can be sure that on the other side of the mountain, resources are headed up to meet you at the point where he's called you to. And we need to stop making excuses. Well, we gotta check that liability. Yes, we need to be smart. We need to, but if God's called us to it, he's going to bring us through it. All of the resources are his. God will provide for anything that he's called us to do, which leads us to the third point. Learn to trust God one day at a time. Oh my, these are hard life lessons. This is one where you just when you think you've got it, something else will come along and you kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back. I'm going to trust the Lord one day at a time. Good. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Did you know this is the God that can do anything? Wouldn't it have been easier? Wouldn't it have been more practical for God to just to say, I'm going to bring enough food for one week at a time? He could do it. I don't know how, but he could do it, right? He can do anything. But he wanted Elijah to have that day by day by day encounter with him. Do you remember the manna that fell from the sky? It's in Exodus 16, 14. It says, when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's what manna means, by the way. What is it? What is this stuff? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. They're in the wilderness. Why? Because they've been disobedient. They didn't trust God. Here, here's this beautiful land. I'm going to give you this beautiful land. Just cross the river. I'm going to provide for you. No, they said, we're not going to do it. They had to take a long walk, a 40-year walk in the wilderness. And God provided a manna. Every day. And he said, just take enough. What did he say? Just take enough for this one day. Just enough for one day. What did they do? Do you remember? 
Well, I'll take enough for one, and then just in case God doesn't, I'm going to take a little bit more. Do you remember? I'm going to hoard it because the truth is they would never say it, but what they're doing by hoarding the manna is saying we don't really trust that you'll come through. Yes, we know that you parted the Red Sea. You, you performed the ten plagues. We, we get it, but we're still having a hard time. Do you remember what happened to the manna that they stored? It began to rot. It began to become putrid and stink. That's almost a sign right there. That's what happens when we don't trust one day at a time. One of my favorite verses is likely one of yours as well. Psalm 119 Your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. When we're called to something, you know, we prefer to have all of the details. You know, who, what, when, where, why, how. I want all the information, Lord, before I'm going to step out. But the Lord says, you know, just just take one step, and I'm going to meet you right there. And then we'll take the next step together. Trust me. No, I, I want the whole plan. The Lord says, you can't handle the whole plan Step by step, day by day, trust me. And if you do that over a lifetime, you'll be amazed where you'll end up. You'll be amazed what the Lord God will be able to do through you. Which leads us to the last point, verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is the last point. A dried up brook may be a sign of God's pleasure in you, not his displeasure. See, because if I'm Elijah and I'm sitting in this cut in the dirt, my, my first thought is, really, Lord? Really? I've been sitting here a year. I've made a, a new chair by the brook. I've tried to make this place kind of livable. I, I just made a little shade by the creek. And all I really had was this brook as my constant companion. And now you've taken that away. What's our first reaction when something's taken away from us? You know, I feel betrayed. I feel shortchanged, afraid, forgotten, forsaken. Never. Isaiah 49 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. But God responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Forsaken? That's sometimes how we feel when something's taken from us. But in the life of Elijah, it meant that he was ready to move forward. Boot camp was over. It's time to move on to a greater calling. Elijah was a spokesman for God, but now he was a man of God. When something's taken away from us, a dried up brook may be a sign of God's pleasure in us as opposed to his displeasure. So we can pray openly, honestly before God. Father, mold me into the person you would have me be. Call me to that thing that you would have me do. Whatever it is. And you see, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to pray, but 
don't let it hurt too much, or don't let it change me too much, or don't let me suffer. We don't have to be afraid. Because he has inscribed your name on the palm of his hands. Would you pray with me? You are incredible, Father. And I know that I do not in any way deserve to come into your presence to be able to call your name. This is not about worthiness. But we are so thankful that you have included us in your plan. That you have created us to walk with you in a relationship day by day, to, to grow. We, we are thankful that you have called us. So as you call us, Lord, please, by the power of your Spirit, encourage us. Take away our fear and help us to fulfill your good plan in our lives. We do this out of love and awe and respect. And you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.